Please join me in reading from Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 42. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go into the temple and stand and speak to all the people the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are the witness to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders for the men to be put outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He, too, perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Today we come to the last of the Beatitudes, our first stretch through the Sermon on the Mount. And it takes a dark turn. 
It's been pretty rosy up until this point. It's been pretty positive. We've learned that the Beatitudes are not just encouragement for how to respond to different circumstances in life and if you do that God will bless you and there will be reward no these are marks of kingdom people and what we've learned is that they're progressive a transformation can take place that moves us from people that are self-confident to people that understand our spiritual poverty and therefore mourn our condition and then come under the yoke of God, become meek and then pure in heart, seekers of righteousness, peacemakers. We become really good people if we're kingdom people. How is it then that those people could be hated so much that Jesus ends this journey of transformation with blessed are those who are persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of like a a great movie with a bad ending, right? Could such good people be so hated? And yet, that's what we see in Jesus' teaching. From the very beginning, Jesus made it clear that persecution is part of the reality of life for kingdom people. In fact, persecution is part of the blessed life. It's to be seen as inevitable. Just a few statistics. It's been estimated that more than 43 million Christians have been killed for their faith since the crucifixion of Jesus. Beyond question, Christians are the highest persecuted population in the history of the world. It's been estimated that more Christians have been martyred in the last 20th century than in all the prior 1900 years combined. There have been more than 26 million documented cases of martyrdom in this century alone. Let me try to put that into perspective. The holocausts of the Jewish nation that we all remember solemnly and weep for totals around nine million. In the last hundred years alone, 26 million Christians around the world have lost their lives. More than 200 million Christians in over 60 nations face persecution every single day. 60% of them are children. The current rate of martyrdom per year is somewhere around 160,000 people. And what that means is that Christians today are the most persecuted group in the world. Persecution is on the rise because of communism and the expanse of uh, Islamic and Hindu extremism and because of the antichrist spirit that is prevalent throughout the world. Just to mention a few, Paul mentioned in a, a recent sermon about the 147 Christian students in Kenya butchered for their faith. 2014, 60 students in Nigeria. In North Korea, if you're a Christian and you're found out, you have two choices. One is to keep your faith and be killed. The other is to deny your faith and be sent to a concentration camp for reprogramming. There are hundreds of thousands of North Korean Christians right now who are being persecuted. We're far removed from the reality of what Jesus said would be the norm 
for Christians, that we would face persecution. We are so far removed from that that when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, we see that as metaphor. It's symbolic of a life of sacrifice. And in the first century, everybody knew that Jesus was calling them to come and die. So let me ask you a hard question. If you're coming to faith in Jesus Christ, meant the decision to live or die, would you still make the decision to follow him? That's a tough question. And it's almost an unfair question because we're not in that circumstance. Let me answer honestly for myself. I hope so. I hope and believe that my trust in Christ is that strong, but we live in a very safe place to worship. Are we better off as American Christians than the rest of the world because we live in relative safety? Is it a blessing that we live in a safe land? Or is it a curse? Is it a reward that we don't face persecution? Or is it because the enemy no longer finds us a threat? 1 Peter 4.12, I want you just to say this with me. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening. Peter's writing to the persecuted church. He's saying, why does this surprise you as though something strange were happening? Do you get what he's saying there? He's saying that we're the ones living in a strange world because we're not facing hardship for Christ. I want to read the rest of that passage. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fire ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Kind of interesting list of reasons why we should suffer. We'll put that all under the category suffering for stupidity's sake. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear the name. So then, those who suffer according to God's will, do you hear that, should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Interesting. Not our response to hardship. Our response is, God, deliver me. Peter understood that, in fact, we rejoice because we suffer for the name of Christ. Let's go back now to the beatitude itself. We're in Matthew chapter 5, beginning of verse 3. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. 
And now our focus today. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the first thing we want to look at is suffering for the right reasons. As we already saw in Peter's letters, you can suffer for the wrong reasons, right? And a lot of people who suffer for the wrong reasons take the suffering as validation for their beliefs and practices. What's one modern example of a group that has it completely wrong and takes the anger of society against them as validation of their form of Christianity? Does any group come to mind? Yes, out in Kansas, Westboro Baptist Church, a hate group. I was on their website just this last week to see if they're even still in business, and evidently some comic radio show host offered to pay for them to go to Iran and Iraq and protest ISIS. (laughs) Somebody suggested we start a Facebook collection group, and I, I think I'd pay into it, but they turned that down. Why? Because it's safe to be foolish in America. There's a great example. They're suffering for stupidity's sake, not for, not for Christ's sake. And very often when we get bad response from people, we feel like somehow that validates us. And let me tell you, Christians can do a lot of stupid and mean-spirited things. There's a very interesting little book you should read, When Bad Christians Happen to Good People. It'll at least sit you up in your seat a little bit and make you think hard about how we come across and therefore why very often Christians in culture suffer for the wrong reasons. So what does it mean to suffer for the right reason? Jesus lists two things. First of all, we suffer because of righteousness, which is rightness. As we become more and more like Jesus, living in a way that is right, the simple truth is culture doesn't like that. Culture doesn't like people that stand up and say what you are blessing, God calls wrong. Just by virtue of being godly people, much of culture will call us hate mongers, bigots, all sorts of things, just because we're hungering and thirsting for what God calls right. But the idea here is bigger than that. It's not just that we live to a higher standard and we answer to God before we answer to culture's norms or even man's laws. It's not just that. In the context of the Beatitudes, righteousness is about the gospel. As we've tracked through this, we've constantly contrasted the religious righteousness of the Pharisees with life in Jesus. The Pharisees believed you could earn it. You could live righteously and therefore see God, find the kingdom of God. And the first thing Jesus says is, it's not about your righteousness, it's about your spiritual poverty. We can't earn the kingdom. So even the Beatitudes are about the gospel. We're not talking about religious righteousness, we're talking about redemptive righteousness. The right standing that comes when we are redeemed through Christ. 
Now, why would the gospel, which is throughout the New Testament called good news, why is the gospel something that's the basis for persecution? Two words, sin and grace. In order to embrace the good news of the gospel, I have to admit that at my heart, I'm not good. I'm capable of dark things. In fact, I've done dark things. And in our society, the group think says, no, you're actually really good, just confused, <laughs> or raised badly, or ignorant. We just need to educate ourselves better, be more enlightened, because in our heart we're all good. The gospel says, in our heart, we're all broken, and that offends people. Why would grace offend people? Grace is good news. That's a great word, isn't it? How can grace be such a problem? Because grace is unmerited forgiveness and favor. I need to understand that I'm never going to earn my way to God. He freely gives me that. It's by grace alone through faith. And so the gospel comes against two parts of our selfism in our culture and in every human spirit. The one that says, I'm good enough, and the other that says, I can accomplish this. I need to earn it. The gospel says none of us are good enough, and therefore we can't earn it, but by God's grace we get it anyway by faith. The gospel is very offensive. In fact, that's exactly what Paul said when he said the cross is to those who are perishing, who are on the other side of a relationship with Christ. The cross is to them foolishness, a stumbling block. People just trip over the message. When we preach the gospel and when we live rightly, Jesus says those things are both going to bring on persecution. You should ask the question, have you ever really faced any significant level of persecution as a Christian? If the answer is no, chances are it's not because you're a better Christian than most people. <laughs> chances are you're not bringing the gospel. Chances are you're not standing up in the more difficult places for what's the right thing to do. The second reason we suffer is because of Jesus himself. That's how he put it. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you falsely, and say all kinds of evil against you simply because of me. Just because we bear the name of Jesus, Christ said, that's going to become a problem for you. Now, you know how it's become a very popular thing for people to say, Jesus I like, Christians not so much. You've heard that, right? And we use it to challenge us to be more uh, attractive as people. But actually, the statement indicates a high level of ignorance about Jesus. If people say, Jesus I like, but they're not committed followers of Jesus, then they don't understand who Jesus is. When Jesus says, you're going to suffer simply because of me, He's not talking about his teaching and the good things he did. He's talking about his deity and his mission on earth. Early on in Matthew 4 and 5, when the Beatitudes are taught, there's 
many thousands of people that are following him. Eventually, the popularity will end. The conspiracies will begin to develop that will lead to his death as a heretic. And the reason why they will go there is because they understand in no uncertain terms that he thinks he's God. And he thinks he's the Messiah, who he was, his deity, and his mission, you see. So we're going to suffer for that, the very thing that Jesus suffered for. And it shouldn't surprise us because Jesus said, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. But then he goes on, and he says there's an upside to being put down. Yes, persecution is the norm, but yet the blessed life isn't challenged by it, isn't deterred by it. This abundant, fulfilling life that Christ came to give is not impacted by persecution. In fact, there's an upside to being put down. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Two things that Jesus says are part of the upside. The first is a great reward. Now, did you notice that the very first beatitude and the very last beatitude both bring the same blessing? Did you notice that? Blessed are the poor in spirit is the first, and it's because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus circles back again to that very same reward. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These bookend blessings remind us that ultimately this is the path to eternal life. Heaven awaits us. We know that there's a greater life beyond that is ours. But further, for those who suffer under persecution, I don't quite understand this and can't give you a lot of specifics about it, but Scripture indicates that those who are martyrs have a greater reward in heaven. In John's vision in Revelation, there are thousands of believers in white given some special status before the throne of God. John says, who are they? And the angel says, these are those that have come through great tribulation. Jesus in his first sermon echoes that vision when he says, rejoice when you face persecution because your reward in heaven will be great. We can bear up anything that this life gives us because we know there's reward and eternity on the other side of it. But then, not only is there a great reward, we're in great company when we face hardship. Jesus reminds us that other very great men and women have gone before us and been treated the same way. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You might want to go and read Hebrews chapter 11 that talks about the life of the faithful people throughout the whole Old Testament. That'll destroy any notion of the health and wealth gospel right there just to read Hebrews chapter 11. For instance, uh, there's an anecdote of those who were killed by being sawn in two. Tradition tells us the prophet Isaiah was killed that way. He was stuck inside a hollow log and he was sawed in two. You know what happened to Daniel as a prophet and the others. 
we're in good company. And it's why the writer of Hebrews says, run with endurance the race marked out for you. And then the great company is also Jesus himself, of course. John 15, 18, say this with me. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. I want to give you another blessing that comes. It's not in the notes, but it's just something that comes to mind now. One of the things Peter talks about, it's the testing of our faith that builds spiritual endurance. If you've lived a reasonably safe Christian life, imagine how much stronger, how much purer, how much exercised your faith would be if you faced difficulty and hardship. God uses even that in a way that makes us stronger. How are we to respond to persecution when it comes? Wendy read for us in Acts chapter 5. I'm going to ask you to turn there with me. This is the first actual physical harm that came to our first century Christians. Previously in chapter 4, they were threatened with harm. Now in chapter 5, they're arrested, miraculously liberated, and they go right back to the temple and begin to preach the gospel again. And they bring them again before the leaders of the Jews. And Peter speaks boldly on behalf of Christ. They don't know quite what to do because they see the popularity of these people and they're thinking of killing them. Gamaliel reminds them that the head of this movement has been killed and in previous false messiahs, they killed the Messiah figure and eventually the movement dwindled. And so he says, look, if pattern repeats, this will dwindle. But if it really is of God, we won't be able to stop it anyway. To my knowledge, Gamaliel did not become a follower of Jesus, so I'm not sure if that statement was just a rhetorical argument. We don't know. But his argument persuaded them, and so they chose to flog. That's a very, very severe beating. And then they return, and and this is where we pick it up. I want to read verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I want to take you to one other passage, and then we're going to draw three ways that you and I are to respond when hardship comes. Let's look back in chapter 4, right after the... um, The first threat, verse 23 of chapter 4. Upon their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. So before I read this, here it is. They've been threatened with harm for preaching about Jesus. Suppose we were down on Maine South doing our homeless outreach, sharing Christ with people uh, who had come to our table. And the police came and said, look, this is public property. You can't share Christ. If we find out you're doing it again, you're going to be arrested. We're a country where you don't get flogged. (laughs) Harm would come to us in whatever way the law would permit. And then we came back together and we said, wow, we were threatened today for preaching the gospel. 
How would we pray? Most likely, God, protect us from this. Bring no harm to us. Keep us safe. Let's see how the first Christians prayed. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, quote, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. We would pray for safety. We would pray for deliverance. And the first lesson we learn about how a true citizen of the kingdom of God should respond to hardship is that we need to pray instead for boldness and power. For courage, not safety. For God to move rather than deliver us. That's how the early followers prayed. Why? Because they had heard the words of Jesus who said, the time will come when they even kick you out of the temple thinking that what they're doing is a thing for God. They had been well trained and prepared by Jesus for this day. And so when it came, they rejoiced in it. And that brings us to the second thing. In both chapter 5 and chapter 6, they rejoiced to suffer disgrace for Christ. Interesting. We say to God, God, it's getting kind of tough out there. And God says, great, rejoice with me. Why should we rejoice? Because we were counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. And then finally, as we saw in chapter 5, they never stopped proclaiming the gospel. You know, in America, we're not really participants in persecution. We're students of persecution. And so we have all these stories that talk about how when the church is persecuted, it thrives. And there are situations where that's often the case. After China finally opened up to the public and we knew Christianity had been outlawed except for a very few approved state churches that were controlled and many people were imprisoned and put to death because they were Christians. When it finally opened up, what, what we discovered was a very strong underground Christian church. But it's a myth to suggest that persecution always brings that. In the 1040 window, which was once the place where many of the Pauline epistles, where the uh, book of Revelation was written to believers, it is now the least evangelized, least Christian part of the entire world. And that is the result of centuries of persecution. Turkey, which once was 80% Christian, is now 2% Christian. 
I know this is a very sobering sermon today, but it's worth our taking this time. We've come to this point in Scripture, and it's worth us asking, what kind of follower of Jesus would I be if it would actually cost me? If you can figure out what that person would look like, then that's the kind of person you should be even in this blessed country where we worship as freely as we do. We're not bold enough. We play it safe. Jesus didn't call anybody to come after him and play it safe. He invited us to come after him and die. Father, in some ways, it's an exercise in theory. We're contemplating the possibilities, but yet we live in a very safe place. And the first thing I ask, Father, is that you make us more bold in our faith. And then in that boldness, when hardship inevitably comes, may we rejoice in it that we were worthy. May we pray for boldness and may we never stop proclaiming the gospel. Thank you that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross and the shame of it. In fact, you despise the shame. You mock the shame. Let us do the same as we, in turn and in response, offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices. In Jesus' name, amen.